The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Our psalm of ascent this morning is number 133. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everybody. So happy to be with you today and uh, how good and pleasant it is to dwell together in unity. That's our, that's our theme this morning, uh, unity. Uh, that's where our sermon is headed. That's where our lives are headed. That's where the trajectory of history is headed. Um, if you've ever wondered why, uh, we at Christ Prez have an Australian uh, leading our worship. And when we have tables up front, which I can't wait to get back to uh, for the Lord's Supper, uh, we have children, we have grown-ups, we have elderly people, we have people with disabilities and special needs, we have people with money, we have people with no money. We have all kinds of people around these tables serving the communion elements. There's a reason why we are working over time to populate our pulpit. Uh, with white voices, with Asian voices, with black voices, with other voices at all of our congregations. There's a reason why we have partnerships across the city and world that represent a greater diversity than perhaps uh, we get to experience in any other area of life. It's because the kingdom of God is for all people. It's for all people groups. When Jesus gave the Great Commission, he said, go into all the world. The original language there was ta ethne, all ethnic groups, all people groups. As Revelation chapter 5 tells us, every nation, every tribe, every tongue. And so we're going to talk about unity amidst diversity today. And we celebrate uh, this, this new work that we get to be part of as CPC uh, in downtown Nashville called CPC Koinonia. Cannot wait to see what the Lord does with that. So on every American coin and bill, there's a Latin phrase, and the phrase goes like this, E pluribus unum. What it means is, out of many, one. Now besides Native Americans, our nation is a nation of immigrants. We call it a melting pot, and yet our diversity is not without its issues. Charles Reich in 1970, that's uh, two years after I was born, that's 50 years ago, came out with a book called The Greening of America, and in The Greening of America he referred to our nation as one great terrifying anti-community. Now it's 2020, and we're partisan, 
we're polarized, we're divided. And wherever society is breaking down, Jesus speaks to his church. To the group of people that he called the city on a hill, or the holy nation that, that, that spread out among all nations, Jesus speaks to that group under his kingship. And he says, as Micah has referred to already this morning, under my kingship, I'm going to unite all people groups in ways that no king has ever been able to do and no king will ever be able to do. John chapter 13, he says, this is how the world's going to know that you all belong to me, that you're one. Out of many, one. Acts chapter 2, we get Pentecost, we get voices, you know, different languages from, from, from different nations. When the church is born, the Holy Spirit um, makes sure to make the point that this is for everyone. The kingdom of God includes men and women, it includes rich and poor, it includes strong and weak, it includes black and white, it includes haves and have-nots, it includes natives and immigrants, it includes Republicans and Democrats, it includes Clark and Cousin Eddie. The kingdom of God is wildly inclusive. What seems impossible outside of the union that we have with Christ and through that union with one another, what seems impossible outside of that union is not only possible in the body of Christ, it, it's imperative. It, it's, it's a hallmark of what makes Christians Christians. And Psalm 133 is an ancient celebration of that reality. But before we build this tower, as our King Jesus has said, we've got to consider the cost together. Because unity is not something that comes easy among diverse peoples. It's not. It's hard fought. It's the soil for growth, and that soil has to be tilled. It has to be beaten up a bit in order to provide fertile ground. And it's wonderfully fragrant. So let's go through those three thoughts together this morning. Hard fought. Unity is hard fought. And the psalmist says in the first verse, behold, behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. And then he goes on to say, it's like the refreshing dew that falls on arid ground to refresh the earth. This word behold in ancient Hebrew, it's like saying, would you look at this? Behold, how remarkable this is, how unusual this is, how from another world this is, and how wonderful this is. What is this? Unity. The reason why he says behold is because it's hard to find it anywhere. It doesn't come naturally to us. You know, history is stained with accounts and stories and anecdotes of disunity. It starts all the way back at the beginning. The human race presents itself, even in the Garden of Eden, as an anti-community. 
Adam and Eve commit the great sin in the garden, eat the forbidden fruit, and then they turn on each other, they turn on God, and they even turn on themselves, covering themselves, running and hiding, you know, beginning this human history of dishonesty and putting on masks. And then sibling rivalry happens between Cain and Abel. Cain becomes envious of his brother and murders him. And then later Joseph's brothers become envious of him and they, they sell him into slavery. And then out in the wilderness, Moses is doing the best that he can to fulfill the call that God has placed on his life to be the leader of the people of Israel. And his brother and sister, Miriam and Aaron, get jealous and turn against him. David's brothers, the great psalmist King David, his brothers belittle him. Even Jesus' siblings were at one point at least that we know about embarrassed by his public ministry. They didn't want to be associated with just, just come on home, Jesus. Just, just stop it. Stop all this radical stuff. This use here of the word brothers, notice he doesn't say, behold how good and pleasant it is for friends to dwell together or for colleagues to dwell together or for, for neighbors uh, to, to dwell together or people who are part of a club to dwell together. He says, behold how good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. When he describes God's people, the implication is you've got to expect some family dynamics to happen in this out of many one thing. You are going, because you're family, to get under each other's skin. It's going to happen. I remember when our daughters were younger, we're praying over a meal, dinner time, thanking the Lord for, for the food, for each other, for life, and one of our daughters pipes in, Dad! She's not closing her eyes. And of course, you know, that becomes a teachable moment. And dad says to daughter, there's nothing in the Bible that says you have to close your eyes when you pray. And you just busted yourself because there's no way that you would know that her eyes are open unless your eyes are open too. So what's that about? And, and the look I got was, well, well somebody's got to watch after her. You know, it was sort of the look, right? It's just ingrained in our hearts, isn't it? To strike out, even at siblings, and especially at siblings. It happens in churches. I, 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 I always get sort of an internal chuckle when people say, you know what, here's why I don't want to, I'm a Christian, and I want Jesus, but I, I really don't want church, because Whatever happened to all those New Testament churches? There aren't any New Testament churches anymore. You want me to tell you, as a guy who's read the New Testament for, for over 35 years every single day of his life, you want me to tell you what the New Testament church is? Corinth, members suing each other, members sleeping around with one another outside of marriage, Rich people neglecting and, 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 and excluding the poor around the Lord's table, New Testament church. 
or the church that the Apostle Paul, the senior minister, is talking to Timothy, his young protege, the junior minister about, where he says, hey, this church that you're going to be leading, many in the church crave, not have, but crave controversies and quarrels. They want to fight with each other. They want to put one another down. They want to gossip. They want to slander one another. They're craving it. You're going to need to shepherd that because the only way the world's going to know we belong to Jesus is if we're one. Or the, the letter to Galatians. Here's another New Testament church. You Galatian Christians, you New Testament church, you stop biting and devouring one another. Luke chapter 9 and Luke chapter 22, the disciples, out of envy again and rivalry, come to Jesus. Hey, tell us who's the greatest. I think it's me. And he thinks it's him. And he thinks it's him. Who's the greatest, Lord? You know, John and James, even the two brothers, even, even asked their mother to go to Jesus on their behalf. And say to Jesus, you know, when you're in your kingdom, when, you, when you're in glory and power again, we think it would be right and good. We think it would be pleasing to the Lord if my two sons, James and John, sat at your right and your left, sort of sharing the credit, sharing your glory. And Jesus, in, in one instance, says, you want to know what greatness is? Here's a little child. Let me tell you what a little child can teach you about greatness. And then in another instance, Jesus gets on his knees and he takes a bucket full of water and, and a towel and begins washing his feet. And he says, the greatest among you are going to be those who serve. What makes unity so hard? It's this reality of, of self-centeredness that, that, that pervades all communities, including Christian communities, all families, including the Christian family. This self-centeredness. Right here, where it says, behold, when, when brothers dwell together, it's sinners that are dwelling together. There are seeds of self-righteousness, self-justification, self-protection, self-interest in every single sinful heart. And so unity is a hard-fought thing. You know, Cousin Eddie, it, forgive me if you haven't seen the Griswold movie, Christmas Vacation. I, I hope you'll watch it at some point. Cousin Eddie is no problem if he lives 300 miles away. We, oh, we didn't laugh about oh, Cousin Eddie. He's, oh, he's just so different. He's, he's such a mess. Cousin Eddie, love me some Cousin Eddie. And then Cousin Eddie shows up unannounced and says, brought my family. We're going to live with you during the holidays and, and, and maybe for longer than that. You know, there's this scene where Clark Griswold says to Cousin Eddie after they've been under the same roof for a little while, Eddie, can I refill your eggnog for you? Get you something to eat? Drive you out to the middle of nowhere and leave you for dead? Can I do any of these things for you? Does any of these have appeal to you? 
This still happens. This kind of irritating thing still happens in churches today. I remember, I see Craig and, and Sarah Perry. They were in our New York church together with us for a while. Yep, I see you. You see me. Um, and one time at our New York City church, I worked really hard to give the best sermon that I could, you know, through the week and gave the best sermon that I thought I could give that week. And a woman comes up to me from the congregation with that concerned look that, that we pastors sometimes experience after our sermons. And, and she said, some of us have been talking, which I've learned over time means me, myself, and I have been talking with each other. Some of us have been talking and I felt like I needed to let you know that we couldn't really pay attention to your sermon because there's this wrinkle on, on, on the left side of your coat that was so distracting. And, and I thought on the inside, cancel her. Cancel her. And then in my spirit, like right after I felt that attitude of cancel her, diminish her, treat her as persona non grata, treat, treat her as a nobody, ignore, dismiss, walk away, blow off. There's this little, you know, there's this sense of conviction in my heart that sounded something like this. Behold how good and pleasant it is for you to dwell with this woman, this blood-bought woman who's your sister, who you belong to and who belongs and, 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 and who also belongs to you because you both belong to me, behold how good and pleasant it is to dwell together with her in unity. And I walk away from that moment and I'm thinking, you know, I can't take the criticism seriously because it, it was kind of unreasonable. Maybe I'll iron better next time. Maybe I'll wear a darker coat to hide the wrinkles out of service to my sister in the Lord. But at the same time, you know, that's a criticism that, you know, I don't have to take too seriously, but her, I must take her seriously because of how seriously Jesus takes her, so seriously that he gave his life for her. That's the basis of our unity, you know. You know, Miroslav Volf wrote an excellent book uh, called Exclusion and Embrace, and it's about these things. It's a lot like Bonhoeffer's um, you know, life together. And he says this about canceling people. He says, forgiveness flounders because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans, even as I exclude myself from the community of sinners. But no one can be in the presence of the God of the crucified Messiah for long without overcoming this double exclusion without transposing the enemy from the sphere of the monstrous into the sphere of shared humanity and oneself from the sphere of proud innocence into the sphere of common sinfulness. Unity, consider the cost of building that tower because it's hard fought and it's worth it. It also provides the soil for our growth in Christ and becoming like Christ. You know, Galatians 5 talks about the fruit of the Spirit. Anybody who, you know, has been involved at all in agriculture, you know that there has to be a pruning 
uh, process that goes on. There has to be a beating up of the soil that, that, that goes on in order for the roots to dig down deeply and become you know, strong and, 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 and established and for the branches to bear fruit. It is the same for growth in Christ and in the fruit of the Spirit. You know, verse 2, it's, it's significant that Aaron is the priest that's mentioned because, as I said already, Aaron behaved in a hostile, disputatious sort of way with, with the person who was not only God's instrument, Moses, God's prophet, but who was also his own brother, and he behaved toward him out of envy. And yet, here he is, Aaron, thrust in the center, the oil flowing down Aaron's beard, Aaron the high priest. And again, his, mother, his brother was Moses, who was the prophet, who did some great things, but who also lost his temper. He had this thing that Tim Keller calls magisterial self-pity. It's a self-pity that leaders get. Nobody understands me. Nobody knows what it's like to be in my situation. I'm all alone here at the top of whatever. Poor, poor me and Moses lost his temper because of criticism that was coming toward him as the leader. He felt sorry for himself. You know, this is the test of a servant. This is from uh, one of my mentors, Jerem Bars. He says, he says, here's how you know whether or not you're a servant. You'll know whether you're, or not you're a servant when somebody else treats you like one. Parents, you, you feel me on this? People who work with a high-maintenance boss or people who supervise a high-maintenance team member, it's hard fought. But it's also the soil for growth. You know, Russ Ramsey in one of our leadership meetings the other day, Russ is our pastor at our, our Cool Springs congregation. Uh, he said it's costly for everyone to go to church these days. It's costing us all something in a global pandemic. Whether we're going to church in the sanctuary or out on the breezeway or, or going to church at home, it's costing something. We have to embrace different. We have to embrace irritating and annoying in order to continue to, to, to invest in our unity together during a global pandemic while also investing in our safety together. But even when we're not in a pandemic, it, it, it was and it will be costly to stay in community with other sinners. It will be. You know, we have this idea of what community is supposed to be. And let's just talk about Christian community since that's the main subject this morning. We have this idea that, that that it's all supposed to just feel so good and be so comfortable and, and have no friction or at least minimal friction between people. We have this idea of, of, of this romanticized idea of what Christian community should be. And then Bonhoeffer comes in in, in Life Together and says this. He who loves his dream of Christian community or our fantasy about what it should be more than the Christian community itself, 
the community that God chose, the community that God created, and, and, and started with a bunch of disciples who bickered a lot with each other, including Matthew and Simon who were on opposite ends of the political continuum. He who loves his dream of Christian community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of that Christian community. Christian community is a gift of God. Only God knows the real state of our fellowship. What may appear weak and trifling to us may be great and glorious to God. The more thankfully we daily receive what is given to us, the more surely and steadily we will, uh, will fellowship increase and grow from day to day as God pleases. So Hebrews chapter 10 says this, let us consider how we may spur each other on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. Now, did you notice the combination of words there? He, he puts the words spur and encouragement together in the same sentence as if they are interrelated. You know, if, a lot of equestrian people uh, in Nashville, maybe some of you ride horses from time to time, and you know what a spur is used for. It, it's, it's an irritant to, to enhance the horse's flourishing. It's an irritant that, that, that will, will irritate the horse into to trotting at 10% speed to, to maybe 90% speed. You know, sometimes, especially as a pastor in America, and I've only been, uh, I've only served in cities that have a whole lot of different church choices, Nashville being one of them, sometimes I wonder if we as American Christians are spoiled by choice. Because most people around the world who choose to worship God in a church have only one choice. There's one church in their town. Take it or leave it. Like it or not, there's one. And when there's just one church, you can't customize your experience anymore. You can't go to the church of the month anymore or the church of this period of two years and then to another one two years after that, just kind of doing your tour through the, whatever the it church is in Nashville during this particular season. You just get one in most towns and cities and villages around the world. What I'm saying here is it is a good and healthy thing not to like about 10 things about your church. Because if, if you discover there's, there's about 10 things you don't like about the church, and by the way, if there's like abuse in the leadership, or if there's like, like injustice being perpetrated and, and it's unaccountable, there, there are reasons to move on. I can't stand up here and delegitimize every reason for moving on. I'm talking about the consumer approach that's spoiled by choice. I'm, I'm, I'm in a very narrow lane right now. But here's what I, what I need to say from this psalm, to preach it faithfully. When you start experiencing a spur in the community of God, that does not represent the end of your community. It, it represents the beginning of your community. You don't have community. You haven't had community yet. 
until someone has apologized and someone has forgiven. And we've worked together to move forward together in deeper relationship. Community hasn't happened yet. We're still in whatever they call the honeymoon phase or the consumer phase, whatever, you want to, whatever name you want to put on it. But community starts when offense happens between sinners and they work it out as the gospel calls us to instead of the way that the world calls us to. We don't cancel each other. We don't shout each other down. We don't crave or, or move into controversies and quarrels. We repent. We apologize. We give redemptive feedback to one another. And in so doing, we help each other become great. In treating each other like servants, we are helping each other become great. Not in a demeaning way, but in an honoring way. I treat you. I, I name you as my servant. You are my servant, just as I am your servant for Jesus' sake. That's what a great community is. Wonderfully fragrant. That's the last thought. It talks here about oil on Aaron's head, on his beard, on his robe. Now, you, you may remember the, the Christmas account of, of, the, of the three wise, or not the three, the many. They're presented as three. Uh, that was wrong. We don't know how many wise men they were. They weren't kings. They were wise men. They, weren't, they might or might not have been three. The wise men, they, they, they bring fragrant oils, like, like the essential oils are really hot today, right? And, and the frank, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, costly gifts, and, and, and the frankincense and myrrh are, are, are for anointing. And when, whenever the oil of anointing is brought, it's to, it's to set apart a prophet, a priest, a king for a special task before the Lord. But here it's talking about the role of the priest, and the priest is given by God as a healer, as an, as an intercessor as an empathizer and as one who delivers the word of God to the people of God. But then fast forward to the Protestant Reformation and Luther from his own reading of scripture discovers that the priesthood belongs to the lay people as well as to the clergy. It's this beautiful doctrine called the priesthood of all believers where we get to minister to one another. First Peter chapter two says this, you or literally y'all, Y'all are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that y'all may declare the praises of him who called y'all out of darkness into his wonderful light. You know, Nathan Tasker uh, alluded to this earlier in the service. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 19. I mean, did you ever find it weird that we get together and sing? I mean, where else do you do that? Do you sing with your colleagues at work? Do you, do you, do you sing at home much? With, with your family members? Do you, do you sing while you're going through Walmart? Uh, do you sing anywhere else but in, in church and maybe at, at a concert of a band you love? It's kind of a weird thing. At least it looks like a weird thing. And yet this is something that, that the scriptures say is so important that we sing together. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your hearts to the Lord. Bonhoeffer has an explanation for this, and I think it's the best that I've ever seen. We don't sing to have an emotional moment, even though that might be a wonderful byproduct of it. 
We don't sing to express ourselves and to get to, you know, to, 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 to enter into whatever our favorite kind of music is. Like that, that's not why we do it, even though that might be a byproduct and a welcome one at that. Bonhoeffer says this, this is why we sing to each other, for the purposes of encouragement and formation. The Christian needs another Christian, Bonhoeffer says, who speaks God's word to him. He needs that other Christian again and again, for by himself he cannot help himself. He needs his brother. Here's the key phrase. The Christ in his own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of his brother. His own heart is uncertain. His brother's is sure. I need you to hear, I, I, I need to hear you sing the word of God. I need to hear you speak the word of God. I need it. It's not optional for me. You know, many of you know that, that have known me for a while that there have been seasons in my life where I've been prone to anxiety, prone to fear, prone to worry about the future. Sometimes it's been debilitating. Most of the time it's low grade, you know, just feeling like the sky is going to fall at some point. And, and what God has done so graciously is put certain people into my life where it could be said of them that, 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 that the Christ in my own heart in those moments is weaker than the word on their lips to me. My wife is one of those people. Jerem Bars has been one of those people that I mentioned earlier in the sermon. Both of them at various times in my seasons of anxiety have told me this, talk to yourself more than you listen to yourself. Or as the scriptures say, Demolish strongholds by taking every thought captive and make it, making it obedient to Christ. Or as somebody else said to me once, don't ignore your worst case scenario. Don't stuff your worst case scenario down. Confront your worst case scenario with what's true. That your long-term reality you're the, as bad as it can get 150 years from now and then into eternity forever and ever and ever, world without end, is resurrection and everlasting life. That's as bad as it could possibly get for you in your long-term future. I've had those people speak those words because the word on their lips was stronger than, than, than the word in my heart. We're not meant to do this alone. It's not good to be alone. The basis of our unity is the Word of God itself, and especially the living Word, Jesus Christ, who himself is good and pleasant and precious and refreshing like the dew on the ground. I love this, this verse here where it says, the Lord has commanded the blessing of Zion forevermore. Whenever you see the word Zion, you can freely replace it with the word church. The two mountains that are mentioned in this psalm, Hermon, which is, which is a high altitude mountain, and Zion, which is a low altitude mountain, there's some symbolism there. Because the one that God chooses to give special attention to, even though there's, there's a place for, for those who sit on the perch of Hermon uh, in the kingdom, there's especially a place for those who dwell in the lowlands, in the low altitudes of Zion. 
There's a message in here, and it's not so subtle, that God favors and blesses the weak and lowly because He is gentle and lowly Himself. Jesus takes the low place. That's where we're going to find Him. This table that we're about to, to approach, there's a seat reserved for people that you and I are tempted to look down on. I don't know what your version is of, of the wrinkle in the coat. We've all got those people that just feel like a spur. Remember, when they treat you like a servant, they're helping to make you great because it's the greatest people in the kingdom who serve and who take the low place. C.S. Lewis says this, I'll close close with this wonderful quote uh, as we approach the Lord's table. And he's speaking of the body of Christ especially. There are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. It is with immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Our merriment or our happiness must be of that kind which exists between people who have, from the outset, taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority. Why? Because the one who was superior chose to take the low place. The one who was in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped but made himself nothing taking the form of a servant. Our hope rests on the back of one who was poor, brown-skinned, spoke Aramaic, from the Middle East, high priest, anointed high priest, who was not unable to sympathize with our weakness, who took us seriously and still takes us seriously today, and the evidence is right in front of us how seriously he takes us, the body and the blood of Christ, the bread and the cup. And so I'd like to transition us to the Lord's Supper now uh, with a word of prayer, and then we'll confess our faith together. Father in heaven, we thank you that your union with us through Christ was hard fought. And it says something of our value to you that you would fight that hard all the way to your own death, Lord Jesus to secure that union with us, and and, and to also make possible that which is not possible outside of Christ. E pluribus unum, out of many, one, that the whole world might look and know that we belong to you. Father, we are one another's servants for Jesus' sake. Make that a wonderfully fragrant thing even now as we engage our senses with the bread and the cup. In your name we pray. Amen.